Hello, everybody. I'm Dwayne Mancini, and welcome to another episode of the Project MedTech Podcast. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. If you're enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcasts by searching MedTech Money on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. MedTech Money is an interview-style podcast focused on demystifying raising and investing capital for MedTech startups. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Galen Data. Galen Data is the cloud for medical device makers. The Galen Cloud provides a configurable platform for device-to-cloud connectivity that is compliant to FDA, HIPAA, and CE Mark standards. Built on 40-plus years of collective experience developing compliance systems in the medical device industry, the company's goal is to make medical device cloud connectivity available to all at a fraction of the cost while shaving months off the development timeline. In this episode, our guest Andrea Davis and I discuss patent searches, patent and IP attorneys, global IP strategy, patent infringement, when a startup would use a patent researcher, and so much more. So without further ado, my discussion with Andrea Davis. All right, Andrea, we are uh, live. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah. So um, if we can start with a uh, intro into um, who you are and, and what you do and, and what you're currently doing, that'd be great. Sure. So my name is Andrea Davis and I am currently um, working, you know, I started my own uh, patent research firm about five years ago now called Botkin IP. Um, but I have a Andrea, t- quick, quick timeout. How do you spell that? <laughs> B-O-D-K-I-N. Perfect. Okay. Keep going. Sorry. Um, yeah, I'm, I, I have a background or a degree, I guess, in, uh, engineering physics. I have a master's in engineering physics from, um, a Swedish university. And I quickly realized that, uh, while, you know, there's the theoretical aspects of, of, uh, physics and math that I really enjoy. I don't love working in a lab and working as an engineer. Um, luckily, I found patents fairly early on, and it was literally like a light bulb moment for me. I knew I was meant to do that. So um, I thought I wanted to be a patent attorney, uh, but as a stepping stone, I thought into moving to the United States, I got a job as a patent searcher and completely fell in love with the job uh, with the profession, and I have been doing it ever since over over twenty years now. Awesome. So <clears throat> you mentioned your graduate work was in Sweden. Um, I happen to know you lived in Italy for some time too. So so maybe this is always really interesting. But can you talk about uh, your background and just where you've been? Because I think it it probably plays a role in, in, in what you do in your business. So it, it does. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm originally from, it, it's a, it's a hodgepodge of, of nationalities. I'm originally from Romania, um, but ethnically Hungarian. And then my parents moved our whole family, um, right before the communism ended in Romania to Sweden. Um, so they, they're still, they still live there. My mom still lives there. Um, 
but I, I moved away after 10 years. So I went to high school in Sweden and, and did my, um, my whole master's, six years of university. It's different there, right, with bachelor's and master's all in one. Um, and then I was kind of looking to find a new adventure, a new place to live, and had no, no desire to come to the United States. We got a scholarship at NASA. Uh, where I actually did my, my thesis, the actual thesis. Um, and I fell in love with the United States and with the people who, who are here. I felt very, very welcomed. Um, and I thought I was going to come here for a few few years, but here here I am now, uh, probably permanently, <laughs> although you never know. Uh, <laughs> very cool. <laughs> and um, so so anyway, so, so you, you, you fall in love with patents, uh, specifically patent searching. So... For the for the listeners who who aren't aware, can you just draw some distinctions between what you do and what a patent attorney does? Because I think for me, when you told me what you did, it was like, oh yeah, okay, I get that. But then it's like, so if I'm a startup company <clears throat> or any kind of company, right? And I'm 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 like, oh, okay, I, I gotta look at IP and patents. Can you just kind of maybe draw some lines there of the differences? Of course. Um, so patent attorneys, what they are, are trained to do, what they learn in law school and what they end up doing most of their jobs is, depending on what kind of patent attorney you are, but, but most of them do um, write the patent applications, right? And then they, they prosecute it with the patent office, which means the back and forth of um, uh, once you file the patent application, the, the patent examiners review it. Uh, they look a little bit to see if, if there's any other prior art, any other patents that disclose it. They usually reject it, and the attorney has to write the um, sort of a, an answer to that. And it goes back and forth until the patent is granted. So that's one kind of patent attorney. Um, there's patent attorneys who are more sort of in-house and, and also in addition to that, maybe uh, deal with making sure nothing is, um, uh, none of the products of that company infringes on, on another uh, competitor's patents or uh, they deal with the contracts of acquisitions. And then you have patent litigators who actually uh, are mostly just involved in, in just that and litigating patents. Whereas for searchers, so what we do is, or, or patent information professionals, which is the, the latest term, we, we, we're called different things, um, patent searcher, patent researcher, patent analyst, but the latest is uh, patent information professionals because our profession is evolving. So it's, we sort of gather the information, we gather the information and, and there's so, there's millions and millions of patents out there. And so, um, from a time perspective, an attorney cannot, with their hourly rate, cannot properly, thoroughly look through all that body of data to figure out what's the best way to, to take an application or best way to invalidate a patent. So our profession um, kind of scours through those millions of patents and, and gives them the most relevant art. Um, so and that they base their work on our reports. Okay. And are most of your clients then law offices? Or are they directly the, the people who are, <clears throat> has the, have the IP? It, it's both. It, it's patent okay. attorneys representing corporations, right? Uh, yeah. And then sometimes corporations have their own in-house patent attorneys. 
Um, so those are probably the two categories of, of biggest categories of, of my clientele. But I also work with surgeons directly. There are lots of surgeon entrepreneurs, and yep. um, you know, a, a lot of them have realized the advantage of working directly with a, a patent information person in addition to working with an attorney. But if I'm able mm -hmm. to, you know, a lot of them are, are knowledgeable in the art. They know what's on the market. They know the intricacies of technology. Some of some of uh, these clients have filed many patents. And so they're IP savvy uh, and they know what to ask for. They know how to review my results. And so it's a, it's a huge uh, value add for them to not have to pay a patent attorney uh, you know, gather the gathering of data. They pay them to to write the patent applications and file them and and do all that, but rely on me for the information to provide. Okay. And then okay. of course there's the inventors and entrepreneurs as well who are yeah. less IP savvy, um, but still uh, need this kind of um, yeah. value. Yeah. Uh, what 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 is the difference between <clears throat> patents and IP intellectual mm -hmm. property? So patents are a part of IP, uh, but trademarks okay. and um, and copyrights they also fall. Trade secrets they all fall under intellectual property. Perfect. Okay, that is the most clear answer I've got so far um, on this because I think it's it's always a little bit confusing, right? Because it's like, oh, okay, so patents are part of your IP strategy. Well, what else makes a part of that IP strategy that are common things that we would know, you know, as an entrepreneur? So yeah, that's super yeah. a lot. A lot of people forget, you know, especially the trade secrets. They are actually part of your intellectual property um, and, and, and a very important part to actually loop in a patent attorney to advise you on how to keep that trade secret and, and what are the steps you need to do uh, to, to make mm -hmm. sure that it stays secret. Okay. How many databases, you know, like if, if someone comes to you and says, okay, Andrea, I, I'm definitely going to the U.S. first. Um, I, I, you know, this is, this is what the product is. This is kind of the patent I want to go after. Um, you're going to go do your research on, on the U.S. database. Is there like a single source you go to for this? Or, and, and then <clears throat> to expand on that, so as you build to that globally, uh -huh. Then how complicated does it get? Because I'm, I'm, I'm guessing there's more globally as well that you have to worry about and, and whatnot. So twofold question. Well, there's several folds in that question, actually. <laughs> it depends on what you want to look for and why you want to look for that. Okay. Um, okay. I, I go for patents. I go to one patent database. I, it's, a, it's a subscription uh, database that includes you know, all in, in, in quotations, all the patents in the world, the mo most of the patent data in the world, and it gets updated on a weekly basis. Um, okay. th there are people who claim to use multiple databases and in certain circumstances that is certainly necessary. Some of those could be in, in pharmaceuticals, for example, or, or biotech. I think they have a different kind of setup for medical devices, which tend to be fairly mechanical, um, it, it's unnecessary. So if somebody says, I'm going to look through two databases and patent databases, and they're pulling up the same data in both of them, it's, it's a waste of your money to have them do that. So you really want to have a person who, who has a, a serious database uh, working on it. There's lots of free resources. 
um, you know, Google Patents and the USPTO has, has a website and the European Patent Office has one. Uh, there's lens.org that has a great interface. But if you're going to do this professionally, those are not as efficient as one of, one of these serious paid uh, subscription uh, databases are. Um, for, for, you know, you, you can also then look for, so that's where all the patents reside or most of the patents reside. Um, whether they're US patents or foreign patents, it, it doesn't matter. They're all going to be in the same platform. Okay. Sometimes you need to look for what's called NPL, stands for non-patent literature. Uh, usually that is journal articles. So you might want to then um, look, look in those resources, whether it's PubMed or Elsevier or, or whatever other resources that gather the, the articles, the journal articles, and, and Google, you know, anything is prior art. So a website is a prior art or, or a, a book in the library is. So it, it depends on why you're looking for the information, what are you going to use it for, and how much money you want to spend into, yeah. you know, gathering the, the data. Okay. Okay. And, and, and so um, if, if, if you have a like if you're actually filing for a provisional patent, which can you can you define that as well? Like I, I know the term provisional patent. Yeah. I think I know the definition, but I'd love to hear what a provisional patent is from you. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not sure if there's like. A, I, I'm sure there is a definition. Uh, I, I uh -huh. don't know it by heart, but it's it's basically a, a patent application that doesn't have to necessarily be up to the standards of a of a, a regular utility patent application. Um, mm -hmm. and, and what it does, it's a placeholder for one year. So you can put all the information in there. You don't necessarily have to, it's advisable to make it look as much as possible as a regular patent application, uh, to just have most of your information in there. Cause otherwise it's easy to, to forget certain things, um, that, that are foundational possibly. So, but, but really it could be just a, a, a data dump that you file okay. with the patent office and you have 12 months and to to decide at the end of the 12 months you have to decide whether you want to just let it go abandoned or you want to convert it into a regular patent application uh, but your clock starts earlier so people do it because uh, either because they want to defer cost it's cheaper to just file this provisional and wait and see whether your your product your idea your startup takes traction before you invest more money in it uh, but also it gives you that that year extra of, of having it there. So if anybody comes later on with the same invention, you have priority over them. Okay, great. Um, and so let's say you get a patent in the US um, or, or a provisional patent um, and you want to go to Europe or Canada or Australia, do you then have to go get a patent in each individual one of those countries or you know like what's the next step there once you have a patent in the u.s are you covered globally i just that's where i i, I have questions on too so patents are our regional uh tools, okay right so so a, if you if you your application gets granted and and that usually takes many mm -hmm. years right uh if your application gets granted um at that point in time you you sort of um, have um, have that that in that particular jurisdiction. So yes, if you want to have coverage in other jurisdictions, you need to file in all of them. There's 
um, it's it's tri tricky because you can be your, your own prior art, so you want to make sure that you file within a certain amount of time from the, the very first original filing. And again, these are, are great questions for patent attorneys because they can advise yeah. you to the exact timing and order in which you want to do yeah. it. There is world uh, patent applications or European where it's sort of a you file one application and then it, again you buy time until there is a point in time where you can branch out into multiple countries from that cool. single source. Okay, so um, <clears throat> let's get back into the patent uh, search, yeah. right? Or uh, sorry, what were they calling you? PIP? Yeah, patent. P P PIP, patent information professional. And then there's, patent information it, it is QPIP. There's a, a, a brand new certification for us. For decades, there was okay. nothing. Uh, and then yeah. finally, we have certification. So it's qualified patent information professional, QPIP for short. So, QPIP. Yeah. Right. So um, can you take me through? <clears throat> obviously, a, a lot of things depend right? Yeah. But can you just take me through your thought process or your strategy or some of the questions you need to know? If, if I come to you, and, and this is an audio only podcast, so they can't see that I'm holding up just like a everyday business card. But let's say this everyday business card is some new heart valve, right? That that I'm going to compete with. So, you know, like, what are what what is that thought process for you of, okay, well, in order for me to do this, Dwayne, I need to know this, this, this information. Um, just, just take me through that thought process and that that maybe process of, of what you want to do. Well, so the, the first question is, what kind of search do you want? Um, do you want a patentability search that helps you figure out whether your idea is novel and uh, it's worth? going through the whole patenting process. Do you want to bring the product to the market and you want to make sure you're not infringing on other patents that that's called a freedom to operate or a clearance search? Uh, do you just want to see who the players are in this market? So you maybe want to do more of a collection of, of you know, card like hard yeah. or what, whatever, you know? Right, right. Um, do you know who your main competitors are and you just want to see their patent portfolios in that, uh, you know, that are that relate to that particular technology? So there is a, a, a whole range of kinds of searches and I would need to know what it is that you you want to do with the information. OK, got it. <clears throat> uh, so that's one. And in terms of the technical aspects, um, I need, I need to know what is novel. So obviously hard valves ha have all kinds of features and you have to, to let me know what it is that you think your uh, invention is. Is it the material? Is it the shape? Is it the mechanism of the valves? Uh, is it the way it's placed in the heart? Um, you know, so, so the de technical details of, of your invention. Yeah. Okay. So you don't technically need indication for use at that point in time. You just need, or you kind of do. No, I think patents work differently in that it, it most of the time, um, it doesn't matter what it's used for. It's more of okay. the, the mechanical aspect of it. And of course, if it's a hard fail, I'm not going to look for uh, necessarily for for just a patentability search for for valves and in you know tubes or, or buildings yeah. or, or somewhere else hydraulic pumps 
um, I'm going to concentrate in heart valves. But other than that, within within that world, um, yeah, it, it, it doesn't work. And I know it's frustrating for a lot of people. I do a lot of spinal uh, technologies. And, and it's the same thing where like, oh, this implant or this retractor, it's for you know, a, a lateral approach, or it is for the cervical discs. Well, it, it doesn't really matter when it comes to patents where you're going to put it. What matters is more of the, the um, you know, the, the mechanical aspects of, of mm-hmm. the device. Right. So f- from the search, are you helping people say, um, like, hey, uh, Andrea, this is the product. <clears throat> you do a search and a device comes back or something like this, right? And it's very, very similar to my mechanical um, properties as well. Uh, Are you kind of saving them time of going to a patent attorney and saying, hey, file this patent? Or are you giving that kind of advice? Or is it more or less like, hey, this is a patent that's already out here. It's gonna look really similar to yours. Do what you want with it, but might not be a good idea. Yeah, so I, I, it's a wonderful question, and I, I want to answer that. Before I do that, I do want to say the, the caveat is that there are method of use patents and, and system patents and other kind of. So it is possible that it's not just the mechanical aspects of it, but okay, it's got much it. Less useful. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so one part of what I I really like about my job uh, is that I don't give advice. <laughs> that's that's why the patent attorneys are paid the big bucks a lot of the times right is because they they give the advice but um i i do save people money though and and Mm -hmm. that is a great great point in that sometimes you go to patent attorneys and you know it's kind of like the the um analogy with with somebody with a hammer they want a hammer right because they have a hammer in hand so they'll want to file for you and they'll want to yes. get you like the broadest coverage. And it sounds great to you as a client, like, yes, let's do it. Um, but what if there is prior art out there that worst case scenario would make, you know, you going down this path, a waste of time and energy and money. Right. Right. Or even if you do, and most of the time, that's not the case, especially with medical devices. People really are knowledgeable once they go down this path. But what happens is maybe they have the whole pizza pie and three quarters of it is already taken. There's already patents out there that describe three quarters. And what you're left with is a quarter of the pizza uh, pie, mm-hmm. right? By going straight for that quarter, if you already know the information, you already know what the patents, you know, most of the patents that are out there, um, then it saves you as a client money. You have to pay for the patent attorney because they have, they focus immediately on that. And then there is less less back and forth with the patent office. Um, so it it is a major time saving component to it. And then okay. in the end, your patent is stronger because technically you file a patent application and the patent examiner's job in part is to see whether there there are other patents out there right and to only give you the slides that you're sort of entitled to um, but they they don't have a lot of time to to do the searching part they don't they have great tools they have very little training and, and so 
sometimes you know they get they grant you patents that are not end up being invalid and so having done your part of the job early on it, it sort, sort of increases the likelihood that whatever patent you get is going to be more solid sort of like a foundation for your house you know if you have a great foundation yeah. then you can build an entire company on it if the foundation is rocky you haven't right. done the inspection um you know there's risks there that might come back okay. later yeah so this is this is where i had some confusion which was okay if if i if i have a patent and then some big strategic has a patent we're in the same space and then i become really successful and they come back and say well we had a patent first and i say well i have a patent too and i'm like see in my head i'm thinking to myself this makes no sense because they got if they both bought issued patents then apparently they're different but then they're suing each other on patent infringement and so um to your point if you do that research then you can know where these things could happen down the line because this still goes to a court to decide it doesn't go to the u.s patents office right it, it can but yeah okay. you're you're right in that people think and and it, one would think that that would be the idea of the uspto uh, kind of acting like a city giving out property titles right like every every area every property is properly delineated and measured and there's no overlap between you and your neighbors right and once you have it it's yours nobody can take it um, unfortunately it doesn't work like that and a lot of times they're overlapping patents just to, to some extent and um just because wow. you have one patent, a granted patent, it doesn't mean that somebody else doesn't also have a, a coverage on, on the whole thing, a part of that that patent, part of your features. Um, so that that's why you can still infringe and, and you still sort of need, should do a freedom to operate or, or a clearance search um, to ensure that you're not doing that. And you're, you're right. It is, you know, ultimately nothing happens until they decide to really sue you um which is when when the or or you know threaten you that you're infringing and and that's when your your trouble will will come and it, it's all a business decision it doesn't mean that you need to stop but maybe maybe you can design around early on maybe if you find this information early on you, you can take measures to to mitigate that risk uh, and still decide to go forward but you're informed and you're prepared Sure. And and yes, there, there are ways uh, to sort of, it's almost like litigation, but it's at the patent office. They're, call, they're called uh, IPRs uh, that are, are still pretty costly, but not as costly as patent litigation at, at courts. And, and sometimes they both can, can happen uh, more or less at the same time. So it is a, a costly endeavor to, to embark on that journey. Yeah. Um, would you be appropriate to ask about what freedom to operate is? So a freedom to operate search, um, uh -huh. it is, is a search where, so it's, it's very different than, than a patentability. So patentability, you're, you're basically looking for, for that device, for that concept, uh, for that feature, um, in, in any publication right okay. anywhere in the world and anywhere within the patent or a website or a book or what whatever it, it might be a journal 
Um, and so if, if somebody in New Zealand, you know, theoretically, if somebody in New Zealand has invented it three years ago and you file in the U.S., you're, you're still not entitled to, to that idea as a, as a patent if, if the examiner finds that New Zealand reference. With freedom to operate, it's jurisdictional. So that's more of like, I want to come out with this product that has feature A, and I want to make sure I have freedom to operate for feature A. Then I would only look at U.S. patents, and I would only really look at claims. So what are the claims? It doesn't matter what the specification says. It doesn't matter what the drawings show. What matters is only what's in the claims of the patent. So I compare the, the product or the feature with each of the claims, and I have to make sure that the claim doesn't read exactly on your product. If there is a single element, extra element, then you're safe. Um, if, if all of your elements are in, or, or all the claims of the patent are in your product, then you're in, uh, potentially infringing. Got it. Okay, great. So I don't um, know if you know the, the three-legged stool analogy. What, the what's the what stool analogy? Three-legged stool. Oh, we use a three-legged stool analogy for reimbursement. Oh, really? Um, yeah, as a, as a for for medical devices, um, the guy's name is Ed Black. He used to work with me at NAMSA. He was the reimbursement expert there, and he used to use that. And I've seen so many of his presentations at this point. And and when I say so many, it's the same one. Um, but but he always used a three legged stool analogy. That's interesting. So yeah, so we yeah. have one in, in patents as well. Yeah. So what is it? Uh, so so it's it's trying to 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 show people like this difference between freedom to operate and patentability. Yeah. So if you have a, or someone has a patent that's granted and it's, it's alive, right? For a, mm -hmm. a stool with three legs. Okay. If you wanna, but you have invented a stool with four legs, you know, you, you figured out this great way of adding a leg and adding, adding more support to it, right? Yeah. It is an improvement. Share mm -hmm. the stool is more stable. Um, you can get a patent on it, right? You you have improved it. You have come up with a new feature that serves a great purpose. So you get a patent on it, but you're still infringing on the stool with three legs because because your stool has three legs. Yeah. And it, ha it has uh. an additional thing, or or you have a stool with a back or armrest. Like those are all improvements that are patent worthy but you would still be infringing on the original idea if it is still granted and still alive that has the three legs. So, you know, you have to pay licensing fees or you choose yep. to go ahead and still infringe and wait for the lawsuit or, you know, whatever your business strategy is. The, the, the opposite doesn't apply. So if somebody has a patent on a four legged stool and you yep. are like, ah, oh, I, I figured out a way to, to save material. I'm only going to use three legs and it's not really losing much in stability. Um, that you would not be infringing. So the, the, the three legged product is not infringing on the four legged, uh, patent. No kidding. <laughs> That's right. That's a, that is a great example. Um, and, and one that it certainly helps me understand it better. Um, so I appreciate that. That's, that's really, really interesting. Yeah. Um, I told you before this podcast that I know very little about 
IP and, and, and well, IP and, and more specifically patents within IP. Um, and so I was going to have some very genuine questions and, and that analogy is great. Um, so, so Andrew, is there anything else that I'm missing that we should chat about when it comes to, um, specifically patent search? Um, is there anything we missed that's a key subject or key, hey, this is something you need to take into account or something strategic, especially, you know, if startups are listening in, you know, what are some of those things that they should take away, I guess? Well, I mean, I, I just, my, my desire is for them to know that this profession exists, right? That, that yeah. there's thousands of people that do this kind of work and and while idea while traditionally we work with patent attorneys there there's nothing that's stopping us from working directly with entrepreneurs and right our hourly rate is much lower than patent attorneys <laughs> and uh we spend more more time on gathering the information right so yeah. uh i i would say i wish for for entrepreneurs to think of us as part of their team and, and maybe potentially earlier on, because they can, while they might not be able to afford a, a patent attorney early on, they can certainly afford a patent information professional, right? And yeah. there is, it, it's, it's complicated and it's tricky to read patents. The, the language of patents, the patentees is truly like a foreign universe. Yeah. Um, and on top of that, sometimes the claims are almost purposefully muddied in, in, yeah. in with language that you would never even think of using, right? Um, so it, it is tricky, and, and I want to make sure that, yes, I, I provide the information, and I, I do the search, and I give the report with however many, 10, 15, 20, 50 references, depending on what the, the project is, and somebody has to read that and make a, a decision. But it's still information that, that you, you have early on and it's valuable, right? You might decide at that point, like, okay, well, I don't know exactly what it says, but I'm too, it's too close for comfort. I want to reconsider and design around my idea just to make sure I'm not doing it this way. But sometimes it's, you know, very um, simple. Okay, it's a spinal implant that's made out of titanium. I'm just making this up. Like, okay, I'm not going to use titanium then. You know, sometimes, most of the time, it's more complicated than that. But the information is out there. The other thing I I often hear, especially from entrepreneurs, is, you know, they're knowledgeable within their space, uh, whether they're surgeons or salespeople. A lot of times, salespeople, they're exposed yeah. to so much, right, in the OR and the hospitals. And they're like, oh, man, I know this can be done better. And here is a way how. And I know there's no such thing on the market because I haven't seen it. And I, I'm exposed to the entire universe. Well, um, according to, to a study done by Thomson Reuters, 70 to 90% of the entire technical knowledge worldwide is disclosed exclusively in patents. No kidding. Take that in. <clears throat> so just because something is not on the market, just because you haven't seen it somewhere in a store, in the OR, wherever, right? It doesn't mean that somebody hasn't had the idea before you. Right. And, right. It, it, you know, in some ways, you're almost lucky to know that somebody has tried to, to patent it and then decided to abandon it for whatever reason. Try to figure out what that reason is. Is it, you know, yeah. it could be that they just ran out of money. 
it could be, you know, a plethora of reasons, but the information, if they decided to file for a patent application, is out there. Yeah, you know, we, we talk about this a lot. It actually makes makes total sense. I mean, you think about how many, uh, you can kind of almost take it in stepwise fashion. There's a lot of patents that are issued every year. There's not as much, but a lot of medical devices that are approved or cleared by the FDA every year. And there is not a lot of companies that are commercially successful, right? Um, and we try to tell people that is like, uh, they, there are some entrepreneurs who are like, oh yeah, once I get this on the market, we're good to go. And a lot of times, it's just it's just the the perception is is they think they think the patent and the uh, FDA submission or wherever they're going is the hard part, which it is hard. Right. There's a lot to be done there. And then I think, but I think they they think it's like, well, it's going to get easier once I start selling, and it's like. No, it's going to get hard. It's going to stay hard. Like this is, this isn't, uh, this uh, medical device development, running a startup company is it's not running a hill. You're not running a hilly marathon. You're running a marathon and it's pretty much all uphill. It is. And when it comes to patents, you know, it's almost worse because you think you get the granted patent and maybe everything is going smoothly and your company is becoming bigger and taking market share. And that's when IP can become again, like back, come back to you because you haven't figured out that there is another, you know, you're infringing on someone and they're going to sue you because all of a sudden now they're threatened by, by you and, and the, uh, right. the care that you're taking from them. You know, maybe you were a small player before, but now that you're successful, they're going to come and get you. So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And, and, and uh, I got to clarify real quick. I didn't mean that like no one should do med tech entrepreneurship and it's so hard. It's just more or less, there's just all new presenting chat. It's an, it's a, it's a different challenge each step of the way. Yeah. Um, but to your point though, you know, I think I, I always, uh, when we, we work with startup companies, cause it's not my area. I'm just, I always just, Hey, you're really confident in your IP strategy, correct? Because mm-hmm. no one cares about the fact that you're infringing on their patent until you're commercially successful. And so, um, you just, you're thinking about IP throughout the entire process um, because you have to because um, you're not going to know if someone actually cares about it until you start selling your product and taking market share. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of times yeah. people still care about it in the beginning. And it, it, I know it's hard. I know, you know, entrepreneurs are bootstrapping and but there could be a VC who's out asking for a due diligence and, and they're going to do their due diligence. So you, you want to make right. sure you're, you're ahead of the game. Um, you want to maybe present things for, for someone, right. For founders, for, um, yeah, whether it's VCs, whether it's an acquisition. So, so you can use patent information to create these beautiful visual landscapes where it shows you the main players in the patent world and and it shows you a lot of sort of visual things you can put in a in a presentation to a ceo or to to someone that that you want to showcase what the marketplace looks like from a patent perspective so there are all these things that you can do with patent information uh, that that can help you along the way and if you find a good partner i think a lot of people sort of end your podcast. I've listened to, to quite a few of your podcasts. I'm a big fan. And a lot of times that, that's you. their advice is get a good team. And 
I couldn't agree even from a patent perspective. Don't just don't just get one patent attorney and 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 sort of that's it. Your team, your IP team, can consist of multiple people, and having a a patent information professional as part of the team where you talk directly to them uh, can help tremendously uh, in in many many ways, and and you can provide information directly, right? And but even when it has to go through and should go through the patent attorney, um, it, it it's a different ballgame when you're when you're hearing it from the client, when you you can ask questions, when they can tell you that you got it wrong and you need to think of it from a different perspective. So it it, um, it that that would be my biggest advice is to make sure that you have a patent information professional in your team, uh, yeah. knowledgeable. And I love that. Know, it's, a, it's a big world. Like I said, there are thousands of people out there, but you kind of get what you pay for in this world. Right. So mm -hmm. much like anywhere else. And, and sure you can, you can choose to, to save money, but, uh, it might, it might, um, have consequences. Come back to get you. So yeah, you, you want to have, you know, just like you wouldn't buy a house without having a, a proper inspection done by somebody who's certified, uh, you, you don't want to leave this to, to an, an unskilled person uh, because it is, you know, your house you're yeah. building on that foundation. So you, you want to make sure it's strong. Yeah. I love that. I, I think the team, the team aspect is we preach it all the time. Right. I mean, uh, there are certain things that, that we, we see, we'll just put it this way. We see companies all the time who check all the boxes from a problem solution aspect. Um, and they even check all the boxes from their own internal team, but the team they build around them that maybe aren't full-time employees, but rather resources like this, they stay, they miss there. And if you miss there, it can add delays and delays and companies and uh, it stinks, but, but, but it happens. And then um, the only other comment to make is only because I have a, a couple sisters, or one sister and one sister-in-law going through the home buying process you would not believe how many people are buying homes and waving their Maybe. home inspection right now. <laughs> it's I, so crazy. <laughs> I mean, I know we're, I know we're um, uh, off topic here, but it is so wild. And I, I guess I would equate um, some of this IP to the same thing. If you don't, if you don't do this now, this is how you get four years in and realize, you know, your foundation has vertical cracks through it and and now you're talking about a fifty thousand dollar project whatever it is so um goodness anyways andrea hang on for one minute we'll chat offline thank you so much for doing this um i will include a link to your linkedin page in here um does your company have a website yes uh, bobkinip.com yeah Perfect. So I'll include that website link in here. Uh, so if people are listening up or down an inch, you can find it right there. Um, awesome. Andrew, Thank you so much. much for doing this. It was yeah. a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at Thanks for listening and have a great day.